Hello and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my guest today, Hind Benbeer, is a professor and head of IS and business analytics at Deakin University in Melbourne. She's a visiting fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute in the UK. Um, Look, I can go on for probably another 10 minutes of what Hind is and what she does, but I'm going to put all of this in the show notes for you to read, and we will just get on with our discussion. So Hind, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Nikki, and thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you. Hind, like I've read your resume, and please, to our audience, please feel free to go and listen to it, because um, I'm I'm completely in awe of your accomplishments and what you've achieved so far, and it looks as though it's a relatively short life that you've done it in. So tell us about your experiences, your career to date, and, and give us some highlights. Sure. Thanks very much, Nikki. Uh, yeah, I do have a global experience. I have worked in over eight countries across four continents. I grew up in North Africa, in Casablanca. I studied and worked in the United States, in Europe, in the UK, and now in Australia for about a year and a half. So such a global experience now, of course, shapes my perspective on everything, as I don't look at things from kind of a narrow perspective or lens, but holistically with the global lens, which of course accounts for the local cultural sensitivity. So I initially started in marketing uh, and worked as a consultant in multinational firms such as ST Microelectronics and IBM. But I quickly realized that I wanted to be in a much more dynamic field. I wanted to give myself an expensive scope to constantly be at the edge of technology-enabled transformation of our economy, of our society, but I also wanted to positively inspire future generations. And at the same time, I wanted to help companies solve the problems they face. So I couldn't find a better field than information technology. So what I did is I pursued a PhD in information technology management, in which I spent half of my courses in Italy. And the other half, I spent it at UCLA Anderson School of Management in California in the US. I was working with leading firms in the Silicon Valley to help them assess and monitor their performance of their IT platform to enhance their knowledge sharing practices, decision making, collaboration and innovation. After that, I worked in France, in Montpellier, uh, and in the UK, in London, in Cambridge, and then in Oxford. Uh, first as a department chair of IT and innovation management, and later as a leader of a research chair in digital business, which uh, examines the implications and consequences of uh, uh, emerging digital technologies on organizations. In both roles, I provided research, consulting services, and executive education to a number of leading organizations, including Sanofi, Siemens, uh, uh, PwC, BT, Spigot, among others. 
And of course, the journey continues today in Melbourne, where I'm the head of information systems and business analytics uh, at Deakin University, uh, a role in which I lead the strategic directions and manage academic aspects of the school, including staffing, teaching, research, industry engagement, and in which I also have the responsibility of current and future uh, program suites and the educational offering offered by the school in the area of business analytics, artificial intelligence, and digital technology. Listen, just nothing. Like, I'm, I'm in complete awe of you. I sit here listening to this going, oh, my goodness, this woman, you're absolutely phenomenal. phenomenal. And my absolute congratulations to you for what you've achieved in your career. I, I just... Uh, um, yeah, just it's huge. And I, I, I listen to a lot of my guests that they speak and I go, it's amazing what people can achieve in their world. Um, you know, I'm, I, I couldn't possibly aspire to do this, but I look at you and I just, as I said, I, my sincere congratulations. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Now, speaking that we're lucky enough to have you in Melbourne, tell us about the move, um, You've moved around a couple of times. Uh, were there like any particular things that you found were unusual coming to Australia? I mean, we are a little bit on the end of the world, if you want to phrase it like that. Um, give us your insights. Thanks very much, Nikki. Well, I really, f I, I consider myself as a very beginning of my journey. So yeah, that was a very, very big move, especially that I joined. Well, actually, I joined during the COVID crisis where Melburnians were in quarantine. And so I think the biggest challenge so far is living in uncertain times, uh, where Australian universities live actually in unprecedented crisis, working on uh, new models to remain sustainable for the future. So major changes are going to remain on the agenda for some time. Yeah. This is, of course, coupled with extended lockdowns where the most resilient humans <laughs> feel challenged and of course the inability to travel both locally and overseas <laughs> yeah. so by nature however um, I'm a very resilient and positive person and I do believe I, that our everyday actions and beliefs uh, shape our future so I choose to to, you know, to never forget the bigger picture and also to build daily habits and routine that together over time can create uh, an impact. So most of the time I look at where we are, what's the gap and where can we, what can we do in order to move from whatever state A to a better state B. So, and uh, if you really look at it and look around, you realize that most people get stuck in what I call the gray zone. They feel that change is impossible and that they are there and that nothing they could do that would be would make or change the, the situation. By contrast, uh, I think I, I always try to adopt a growth mindset and work out the actions needed to move from one state to a better state. And really, this is the kind of spirit and leadership I try to always, I'm eager to share with my team, with my staff, as well as with my family and my kids. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I have two sons myself, Hind, and I always used to say to them, never underestimate the impact that you have in the world. And it starts with when you leave your own home, when you get on the bus, be polite to the bus driver. I mean, I have to say, you know, obviously you're going to be polite, but your actions, your even minor little actions can have severe consequences. So be mindful and, and recognize that what you do does have an impact in the world. Um, you know, and I always think of, if you think, um, if you think one mosquito, what's there's an analogy of the one mosquito keeping you awake. It's the same with people. What you do does count. It's, it's the ripple effect that goes out. Absolutely. Because we, we, we are in a position to inspire other people and shape their future and their careers. And so by adopting this kind of mindset and sharing it, we're, of course, impacting other people around us, impacting our ecosystem, impacting our organizations. So it's very important to adopt such growth mindset and don't feel that, you know, the world is finished. You know, the situation is just a crisis. Things change over time and they are already progressing towards positive things. If you really look at it. Yeah, listen, and I think especially now, this message is really important out there to our listeners that, um, you know, with mental health being, you know, like we had a crisis point, I think, in Australia, certainly um, from what I'm reading, there, there are lots of people in dire circumstances. And I think, um, you know, especially kids, school children and, and kids at universities. Now, how how is that being managed at Deakin? Well, uh, we we are fortunate to, to have, again, technology, I think, the uh, I believe we live in a world of exponential improvement, technology performance that can help us to amplify our impact in ways that were absolutely unimaginable a few decades ago. So, and I, as you mentioned, you know, the, the COVID crisis is the best illustration and examples where the role of technology has significantly uh, expanded from the very mundane daily type of tasks such as shopping or learning or working and meeting and entertaining. So we rely on these technologies. We're lucky to keep stay connected uh, overseas uh, with other people that are geographically dispersed, but at the same time, continuing to do uh, these th- types of, uh, of uh, activities. So technology enables this continuity of work and more and more, it supports more complex tasks related to decision making and other. And so, uh, of course, there are adverse effects of that if you really keep connected all the time and you don't create separate work time between, you know, work and the free time, mostly where you need to create a space of reflection and freedom and move ahead. But really, technology enabled us to do things that we're not doing a few years ago and it just it's a moving trajectory and now with uh, artificial intelligence uh, that is considered one of the most disruptive and transformative uh, new technologies for um, large organizations so if you look really at uh, deployment of artificial intelligence and how they have progressed over time you'll see that you can, of course, classify those technologies over so many different dimensions based on the technology used, uh, based on the task they enable, based on their level of uh, autonomy uh, and the intelligence they display, but uh, they really enabled so many different possibilities for the future. 
So this brings me to your visiting fellow at Oxford Internet Institute, where your area of research is um, the field of emergency, emerging technologies, in particular robotics and artificial intelligence. Um, and this will bring a fresh perspective to how we study the future of work. What insights have you formed and how has this shifted, particularly during the COVID period? Well, first, uh, artificial intelligence provides many, many novel possibilities for enhancing people's lives in a variety of areas, including home, including healthcare, including security, including education and employment. And clearly today, organizations are using AI beyond automation to engage in novel ways with uh, employees, to engage in novel ways with customers, to enhance decision-making, to create new products and services, but even to reimagine, deploy a new business model. So, uh, the space of possibilities is really expanding. It's a moving target. The technologies we have today, some of the uh, that we call AI didn't exist in the past. And the technologies that we were going to have in the future, we, so we haven't even imagined and envisioned them yet. So it's a, first, it's important to consider that AI is an evolving target. The other thing is that with these technologies, there is a space of possibilities, but also there is a space of challenges. And those challenges, some of them might be related to dysfunctions that need to be managed. Uh, I believe education here is very, very important. So if you look at uh, most of the training available, most of the time they focus on technical skills. But that's not enough to manage artificial intelligence, which are set to transform our everyday work, the nature of work and the relationships in organizations. So first, I believe education is really uh, important here in order to both about the potential and the challenges of artificial intelligence is really, really important. Second, even if we talk about challenges and we can cite a list of challenges here, uh, we hear every day about algorithmic bias, we hear about accountability issues, which means who is going to be accountable? Well, who is responsible if the algorithm make up, come up with an outcome and uh, we don't know whose who's responsibility? And then there is all, um, all what comes with privacy issues or even the inability to explain a decision or an outcome because the algorithm is opaque and people don't understand uh, its making. And so Despite these challenges, uh, I do believe that all of these challenges are manageable. Uh, organizations can and should develop capabilities over time. Uh, government is already defining a strategy and regulations and the mechanisms in order to manage uh, some of the dysfunctions related to these technologies. But however, over-regulation is absolutely not the solution here. You know, it's... it's uh, Today's manager needs to deal with both possibilities and challenges related to uh, AI adoption. Now that brings me to the nature of work uh, and the future of work. And uh, there are a lot of, there have been a lot of debates about job losses due to automation. And we realize that those job losses remain minimal. It's more about changing, transforming the work itself whether we are referring to decision-making, organizational design, whether we are talking about specific tasks, it's all shifting. And most of the cases, AI systems are unable to replace humans. 
we're still into making this equation where human plus machines creates a better future. And we're still, uh, I think most organizations are still learning about how teaming uh, humans with machine can augment uh, work. And so I believe that's, that's our future. Yeah, I, and I think um, this this disconnect of um, I think it's a little bit this we we so afraid of it because and this blocks it a little bit in terms of the adoption rate, of course, in Australia. So, how mature and robust do you think our, our AI space is that we moving around and um, coupled with that the robotics space? Well, I think if you really look at it from uh, an adoption perspective in Australia in particular, you'll find that there are various studies out there. And in clearly most global surveys rank uh, Australia low in maturity, but high in AI readiness. And so in these surveys, usually the US uh, and uh, United, uh, several other European countries and United uh, Kingdom are clearly outlined as uh, more mature than Australia. But however, if you look at some specific industries, because maturity differs from one industry to another, if you look at financial services in uh, Australia, it's clearly more mature than several other uh, countries I have been to, uh, even some of the European countries. It's really much more advanced telecommunications as well, retail as well. And so uh, I think that there are mature practices out there. What I see is that there is less research and development related to AI in Australia. There is maybe there is um, less innovation that is visible. Having personally spent time in Oxford and Cambridge, it, it was very easy for me to see uh, the innovations, whether those are related to robotics in terms of robotic surgery and what companies I was able to test or the, you know, how to perform with a, a surgery with a, a robot and look at the simulations available, whether that is related to farming and robot picking fruits. People are eager to show those innovations and to make them visible and to talk about them. In Australia, it's very hard. Even if you dig, you know, I think people are not eager to speak about those innovations yet. I think they are happening, but they are not visible yet. So clearly uh, the Australian government is making uh, artificial intelligence a priority. I mean, digital technologies, uh, including AR, are potentially worth, often cited the number is 315 billion to the Australian economy by 228. Those uh, investments are necessary. But uh, I believe the private investment uh, are necessary as well. Um, I believe also that universities and businesses should collaborate better here to improve and ensure that postgraduate skills are relevant to industry and to help businesses uh, identify talent so they can develop career pathways that, that are relevant to industry. And... Uh, it's not developed a lot. Uh, it's a moving target as well. So I hope to see in the future more of this collaborative training because there is a gap out there. And uh, rather than working separately, I believe all the actors need to work collaboratively to create a better AI uh, ecosystem 
for uh, Australia. So I believe the future uh, is there and uh, the objective is to make Australia a leading economy. So all of the actors need to work together to create that vision and that future. I couldn't agree with you more, Hind. And I think possibly what you're referring to a little bit of Australians not talking about it is a little bit tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you've come across this well-used phrase here. Um, Australians aren't particularly uh, good at blowing their own trumpets of the amazing work that they're doing. And I think this was part and parcel of why I started this podcast is actually it's a platform for people to blow their trumpets as loudly as they want to. And if they don't do it loudly enough, I will do it for them because we certainly have the small in Australia. It's not that we stand back for anyone in the world in terms of the work that we're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree. I mean, there are probably a lot of innovation out there, but, you know, you really have to search very hard in order to find something and make it visible. Um, That's also one of the aims, I believe, for the AI festival. (laughs) Yeah, which we're going to touch on now. I'll, I'll just do the little introduction. Hind and her team are doing this, are spearheading the inaugural AI and the Future of Work Festival, which will be held on the 29th and 30th of September in Melbourne. So, Hind, tell us all about it. (laughs) Thanks, Nikki. Yeah, well... I think it's really critical at this stage for organizations at the forefront of these changes to come together and lead the discussion on how we can meet the challenges related to AI, but also to make the best possible use of the uh, benefits AI can bring in a thoughtful, considerate manner. So the objective of the Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Work Festival is really to bring together these diverse leaders in AI from government, academia, and industry uh, to advance the conversation on uh, harnessing the potential of our artificial intelligence. It's really shaping up nicely. It's an exciting event. We have the pleasure to have the opening that will be done by the Minister of the Digital Economy, Senator Jane Humi. Uh, There are over 30 speakers from so many different organizations joining uh, to share their practices, uh, to share the progress they have made today, to share the challenges they are facing. Keynotes from uh, Tom Davenport, who is a professor leading authority in this domain, from CEO Glenn Ravi, from people uh, from Deloitte, Kelly Nuttall, uh, from Amazon, Simon Peter Johnston, from SAP, uh, Nicholas Nicoludis, from Oracle, Kartik Venkatra Subramanian, from ACS as well, Steve Nuri, uh, from so many other organizations. So we have Catherine Lopez, we have Jonathan Shank from Silver Pond. Uh, uh, Nick Rousseau is joining us to talk robotic as well. Chris Howard from Amazon, Matt Cooper holds from uh, PwC, Sami McLean from Telstra, Christine Derry from MIT, uh, Ashok Mysore from Infosys, Julian Watts uh, uh, from KPMG, uh, John Blick uh, who is leading uh, Innovation Matters, Clyde Fernandez uh, from um, SAP, I think, Anurag uh, Swain from ANZ, uh, from Salesforce, Clyde is from Salesforce, Anurag Swain from uh, INZ, uh, Nicholas uh, Tarkal-Santeri, who is leading um, an AI firm uh, in Sydney, uh, Amina Crooks, uh, Jamie Atkin, Ruby Wolf, 
Sveta Fredman, Stefan Harrer, Sandy Reddy. So we really have a large number of speakers who are going to cover a diversity of topics. So even the in the topics that are curated or selected, each one of them, there is also diversity in positions and opinions. So for instance, for the future of work, you've got people that think positively about it. There are people that uh, are supportive, but they have a specific position on how it could be done better. Uh, for the future of work, there are different positions and views as well. For responsible AI, uh, different practices from different organizations, uh, innovation, uh, uh, innovation in AI uh, from, uh, you know, uh, Scott Thompson in Google, from people from so many different organizations sharing what they are doing in that space. Uh, and the, the overall objective is to showcase the current state and best practices uh, in AI in Australia. Now, the objective also is not just to have this conversation and stop, you know, this is a moving target, it's an ongoing conversation, and the objective is also to create a, a network to develop collaborative research events and to advance the state of research practice and maturity of both analytics and AI in Australia. And when we talk about analytics, most of the time people think analytics is disconnected from AI, but this is not true. Well, we're in analytics 4.0, which most of the time is merging with AI because we are not anymore in descriptive models. We're more into prescriptive and predictive models. And a lot of analytics is embedded and merged with uh, machine learning and deep learning models uh, to make better predictions on the future. So is really for now there are 400 members of analytics and AI leaders and working, I'm working, I'm leading this network and I'm working on shaping it so that, you know, uh, we come together and uh, we have uh, a working uh, portfolio where we can change the conversation and lead the conversation and support businesses and the government in other initiatives as well. So it's an ambitious goal, but that's, that's where we are leading to. Huge. And I, I like the emphasis on, you know, who's leading the conversation and what's your, what's your mindset? Is it positive or negative? Because that has a huge impact on how we're telling the story of what's going on in the space. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think uh, what's important here is also to account for the different views and the diverse, diversity of opinion. So there isn't one dominant uh, organizations or actors really bringing together uh, industry, government, and academia to really advance the debate. I'm absolutely looking forward to it. So is this an in-person event, Hind, or what are you going to do with the, the fluid COVID situation? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's very funny because when I envisioned this, I envisioned uh, robots uh, serving coffee, and I've envisioned it with People being able to test their digital version, their digital avatar, you know, there is this digital humans and there are a lot of companies also in Australia providing solutions. And so I had in mind people testing and looking at their digital avatar. And but unfortunately, the COVID uh, crisis has, you know, changed the, the situation. We cannot do it in person. 
But I'm also uh, feel fortunate that with technology, we're going to have an event where people are based in Sydney or people are based in the US uh, or people are based overseas and we are going to join the conversation and we're going to have these debates. We're going to have this panel. We're going to have these presentations with so many different points and also uh, What's important here and what's nice is that it's not focused on one particular industry. There is really uh, a large number of industries represented which are important in Australia. And uh, it's nice to see this diversity of topic industries, organizations represented. So I really look forward to it. Uh, I think just with the lineup of speakers that you've mentioned, it's the absolute who's who in their particular field. So I think it, is, it promises to be a huge event. Now, where can people book for it? Well, um, uh, it's it's very easy. We have a website, but also I think it's you just, um, I'm, I'm happy to share the link. Yes. Uh, but also, uh, you, if you just type AI and the future of work festival in Deacon, it's the first page that appears in Google. Uh, so yeah, I think that's, that's, it's very easy to access. Definitely. We'll put the, the links in the show notes as well. And, um, they've got basically up until the, the 28th. Is that right? There's, is there a hard cutoff? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Especially I suppose because it's an online event. So make sure that you book it before the 28th of September people. Now you're involved in several publications. Can you tell us a little bit more about these? Well, uh, yeah, I think if you really talk about publications, um, you know, I have uh, published or written four books and clearly over 60 articles if you include the proceedings. <laughs> so I think I'm going to refer quickly to three articles in progress, which are new in progress, not published yet. One is related to uh, digital twins. Uh, digital twins are digital replicas. Uh, of physical equipments, of processes, and of humans. They are used across uh, so many different industries to enhance the performance of machines, to detect early failures, to be able to predict the future of an asset, to be able to, you know, uh, even customize healthcare and predict uh, what would happen uh, to a human in the future and do customized medicine. So, the space of possibilities over there is really uh, huge. At the same time, a lot of companies has not done much progress. So what I did is I have been, I had over 70 interviews over the last few years to identify the industries where there is a maturity stage such as aerospace and, you know, leading uh, companies uh, in the IT sector and other companies which are just starting with digital twins. And to outline a model of maturity of what are the challenges those companies are facing and how they need to develop a capability to move from one stage to another. So I think that's a, a first work in progress I work on. Another one is related to digital uh, innovation. Uh, a large number of firms rely on crowdsourcing platform to enhance their innovation capability. And so they use this platform to access remote knowledge, uh, intelligence, skills, and ideas of users beyond their R&D, beyond their existing employees, involving actors and their uh, ecosystem 
whether those are employees or, uh, or users or partners, in order to come up with better innovative ideas. And so I look at it from a human perspective lens. So people participate. And most of the time, people either succeed or fail. Uh, they fail to get their ideas adopted uh, and alive. So I look at what differentiates success from failure. I look at, is it persistence in the face of failure? Is, that, is it people that persist over time and continue because they fail, they continue to participate over time and they try to learn from the feedback provided and use different strategies to shape their future outcome? Or is it more deliberate strategies related to focus? You know, I would just select few initiatives and build a capability within those initiatives to be able to shape success and outcome. So I really look at it from a human behavior and how humans adapt to different situations to be able to shape future outcomes. And again, I also look at crowdsourcing and how it supports marginal actors in organizations. The people that are not necessarily have the highest status or uh, have, you know, senior uh, positions within organizations and large established network, but more marginal actors, whether you refer to this marginality by gender, by ethnicity, by experience. Uh, I look at different sources of marginality and I look at it and how platform change actually uh, this marginality, how uh, marginality shapes innovation outcomes. So there isn't that offline where uh, the, the, you know, the qualifications in terms of status and the other traditional indicators are important. Now you're online. So how are you shaping innovation outcomes and who, uh, where does the best ideas come from? Hinder, I'm sitting here thinking that, you know, that the, the world that we live in now and that's that kids are growing up it is so completely different to I'm, I'm hazarding against the world that you and I that we we are formative years and um you know I, I'm just thinking this weekend I was listening I read a LinkedIn post about a youngster 13 year old mental you know tried to commit suicide because of online bullying like that the, the the, the place and the space that we inhabit is completely different today. And I think we need to put different measures, safeguards in place for people using it. Like you mentioned earlier, like when do you take a break from your, your, your phone or your devices and you need space to have creative thoughts and, um, you know, you need a space to be a little bit bored because that's where your creative thoughts come out is when your brain just relaxing and going, okay, well, what can I think about? Not this constant bombardment that we face with daily. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think there are, we're all responsible. I mean, we as parents, uh, I think organizations as well as government need to uh, establish, you know, kind of boundaries between uh, life and work. I, I was in France uh, a few years ago and there was this law of, uh, uh, you know, disconnect. You know, it's really a responsibility. So um, you've got to disconnect and people are not expected to work during their uh, free time and they are not expected to respond to uh, constant uh, queries from different actors, whether they are colleagues or whether they are from students or whether they are from. And so there is that 
law that is, you know, in, in France support that domain between, you know, where do you stop and what do you expect from work? Uh, I think uh, there needs to be some laws in Australia as well in order to protect users uh, and employees uh, in the future because work and, you know, uh, and social life are becoming merging and more and more merging. And the, the boundaries that used to exist uh, before COVID where we were working, uh, you know, uh, during work time and uh, relaxing and doing other activities during our freedom don't exist anymore. So we have to create those boundaries. We have to create some detox, you know, digital detox periods. But uh, I believe organizations have also a responsibility in here to protect uh, users, to respect their, uh, you know, their, their life and their mental health and other. Uh, I have seen a lot of organizations uh, giving extra days uh, to uh, employees to be able to disconnect and just, you know, to, to be able to relax because the times are somehow different. But I also expect... Um, also, uh, you know, uh, new laws from the government to protect to protect all employees and as our responsibilities, our parents, you know, it's uh, I think it's huge. I mean, uh, kids get screens now all the time. I mean, they don't go to classrooms. They have their screens and they do Zooms with their teachers and uh, they could play at the same time. They are not even focused on the activities with the teacher because nobody is looking at what they are doing. And so I think it's our responsibility as parents to also educate our kids, to explain to them, uh, to really inform them that they're not aware of what could happen or not happen. And so, yeah, I think it's a huge responsibility on, uh, on parents as well to educate their kids. Definitely. So does a, does a university have some sort of guidelines that they, they are already implementing? Uh, uh, I, well, I, regulations, uh, you know, there is this uh, free time that's given more to staff, uh, more and more. Uh, I think for students, you don't know what they are doing. They are in yeah. their own space. So you cannot really uh, account or uh, regulate uh, uh, there is more and more of this uh, educational support that's provided to uh, enable younger generations to take time off uh, and uh, to create time for work and time for uh, pleasure and time for leisure and time for relaxing. But I believe we're at the very, very beginning of this process, whether we're referring to organizations or uh, universities or from a government perspective because I think the the especially in Australia I think we have had the the longest lockdown periods of <laughs> all over the world so and uh, we are still in lockdown let us not forget <laughs> to mention that and <laughs> <laughs> how do you see this playing out you know where people talk about the new normal and like I don't know that's actually even like you know it, it just is what it is you know going forward um, with people going back to work and people wanting to work from home now more and more because it's actually been proven that you can actually employ, you can actually trust your staff to do the work from home. They're going to do it. And um, we've had like nearly two years of doing it this way. What do you see as the landscape going forward and how are people going to be navigating this? Yeah, uh, I absolutely believe that we are not going to return to 
the past or where we were in the past expecting people to uh, be working, uh, you know, uh, from work, be physically present at work uh, every day of the week. Uh, there are a lot of organizations across the globe that have taken the decision that people, uh, you know, it, it, it can work from home certain days, can work from home half time, can work, but, you know, there isn't this expectation anymore of, of being physically at work 100% uh, of time compared to the past. So there have been evolution of uh, mindset here about how much time you need to be physically there and how much time you can work from home. That's uh, something that has shifted radically during the COVID crisis. So there is no return to the past. And I believe that's the future. There are people are expected to work from home. They're efficient and people, uh, and they are expected to be at work and have those uh, physical uh, interactive discussions that are also necessary to build trust and you know, a lot of conversations online sometimes uh, are are not great, are they're not perfect. And when you meet people face to face, you have different sorts of interactions and the different form of conversations. Uh, and so I believe this can go together. People can work from home and they can as well spend time uh, uh, at work physically uh, meeting. There is also um, more and more, uh, I believe, uh, there is this uh, merging between the online and physical that is going to be there for uh, a while. And for some functions, for some activities, there is that expectation to meet customers and to be physically there from time to time. Uh, but there's going to be married. The physical and the digital are going to be together for a while. And how do you think it's going to impact universities in terms of students having to attend classes and that sort of um, stuff? Well, I, I think really universities have... Uh, really done a great job during the last few years where uh, education shifted online and uh, where, uh, you know, a lot of teaching has been done uh, online where even the teaching itself changed in nature. It's not anymore these large classes where people are expected to attend. It's uh, the nature of learning uh, of, uh, with younger generation or with the future generation is much more interactive and more and more this kind of interactions can be done online with specific physical meeting time dedicated to laboratories uh, and in small setting. But um, clearly we're not going to go uh, again towards this large classrooms of thousands of people expected to be there. Uh, for exec education, there has also been a shift. Uh, people just enjoyed the online environment and more and more they want to have more uh, online and they still want to network and do specific activities related to projects, related to simulations, uh, related to working in industry projects and clinics, meeting. Uh, and so Meeting in those specific conditions is really great because, you know, you create other dynamics while uh, some of the sharing related to the best practices or learning essentials can still be pursued online. I'd imagine there would be an economic impact going hand in hand with this. If you're not 
having large amounts of students in person in a classroom, but you're doing it online, would there be some adjustment in the fees? And I mean, second to that, it sort of opens up the the possibility that you could go to university in the US, like if you're if you're based in Australia and and different countries are employing and adopting this model, you don't actually have to live in the same country as you know where you're doing a formal education, possibly. Yeah, well, I I think there's still a difference over there. I think uh, the programs in the US are much much more expensive. And, uh, of course, if you are talking about short courses and upgrade of specific skills, then there is, you know, it's online. It's a few days. Uh, You can do it and it doesn't matter. But if you're talking about um, qualifications or if you're talking about uh, um, diplomas for that take uh, two years uh, and more, uh, I think that that's that's, of course, going to be managed and shifting online. But it's not going to completely transform uh, educations as we see it today. There is going to still be uh, a presence uh, mm-hmm. on site and the, there is still opportunities for Australia as an educational environment. Uh, uh, we're just expecting the, the opening of the borders and uh, the, the return of international students. They themselves want to return physically uh, in, mm. in campus because, the, you know, it's it's the experience also of the culture of the country, of other colleagues. It's creating a network uh, of, uh, you know, of, of mentors. Uh, so I, I think for short educational offering, yes, there's going to be a difference over there. But for uh, longer, for uh, postgraduate, for uh, graduates and others, uh, the fees and the systems are completely different, and I don't see a radical shift in there uh, caused by COVID. Yeah, possibly I, I would even extend it a little bit to the Australian because, like, we've got such a huge economy built around our international students that um, I think universities would take a long, hard look before they start adjusting anything because it's such a huge source of income for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, well, uh, you know... Uh, Universities in Australia have had a big hit because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so they're all transforming their models. Um, but international students have and will always uh, constitute uh, a source of revenue generation. It's an important uh, uh, category of uh, professionals that we serve. And uh, it will continue in the future. We, are, we can serve the local market by short offering, by specific educational programs that are designated to uh, the current context. But also we we should not forget that we're in a global context and uh, there are people from so many different countries that want this global education and uh, uh, we're still leading actors in that domain. It's just yeah. a matter of timing and uh, with the vaccination rates, it looks like by the end of the year, uh, things are going to progress quite positively and hopefully next year is going to be better than this year. Yeah, listen, I, I want to be with you on that positive note because, I mean, um, I think Australian universities still are recognised worldwide as, as leaders in the space and um, you can... It's, there's no um, shame in saying you've got a degree from an Australian university. You can go anywhere in the world with that degree. So um, let's let's hope everyone does what they do. If you haven't been vaccinated, please go and get <laughs> vaccinated today. Make the appointment. 
Hind, now you speak four languages. Tell me, <laughs> do you read, write, speak them fluently? Tell me how this happens. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I do. Well, I, I speak uh, English, of course, yes. Italian, French, and Arabic. Uh, I have given up in German in my 20s. I tried to learn German. And then I realized, okay, hmm, there's a lot of mixing between sentences and, uh, uh, you know, but I have given up on German, but not on Spanish. Uh, I think I have some basics in Spanish and it's going to be very easy for me if I just spend a few months of full immersion in Spain to become fluent. Uh, I, I really love learning new languages and I think the best way really to learn a new language is full immersion. I, I remember when I went to Italy for the first time to study, the education was provided in English, but uh, we were in a full immersion. People didn't speak English most yeah. of the time. And so you just, or any other language, and so you just buy being fully immersed in a certain environment, you've got to adjust and adapt and you quickly, actually. I think after a few months, we really started, all of the you know, students that arrived there started speaking Italian. And so it's fascinating. Uh, you just learn the culture. You learn so many things that are specific about culture when you learn the language and you're immersed with people. And I still uh, watch Italian movies, <laughs> listen to Italian music. I just love it. And the same for other languages. It's, uh, uh, you know, um, you see me for a day listening to Arabic music, Italian music. And then there is some weekend I will be all French. And then another day it's going to be all English or even a language that I don't speak, <laughs> you know, Chinese. I have been in China and I love the music. And so I love this uh, DVDs and CDs and I bought them and from time to time even if I don't understand I find the rhythms fascinating I would listen to it so listen I, I speak two languages um fluent that are you know English and Afrikaans because I'm South African so you know I think nothing of it because I was you know from baby my mom was English and my dad was Afrikaans so you know like I flip flop between the two <laughs> languages and um you know when I sit with my family they all speak Afrikaans to me, but they speak English to each other. And this is quite normal in our house. It's not normal for all South Africans, of course, but for me, it's quite normal. So I, I do look and I, I encourage people that, and if you've got kids, especially youngsters, I mean, that's where you want to immerse them in new languages, get them to learn another language. It's really important, actually. Uh, absolutely. People who learn, I mean, it's scientifically proven that people who uh, at least are bilingual, have more adaptation skills, and they actually also understand more about the cultural sensitivities. So it helps in relationship building and cultural interaction. And it's also, you know, just for uh, your, your brain dynamics, just being able to juggle two languages, it's yeah. really beneficial. Yeah, I mean, as you say, like, you, I, you don't even realize that when you're flipping in between and other people are sitting, they've lost half of the conversation and they pick <laughs> up the other half again. So. Now, you're an absolutely keen runner. Tell us, is this where you have a little bit of downtime and you start having some creative thoughts? Do you do you tackle these marathons and the training and you go, right, now I'm going to solve my problems? <laughs> you're absolutely right, actually. <laughs> I think I don't really consider myself as a serious runner you know when I go for a run it's really a relaxation moment for me it's a happiness moment you know it's a you go there you 
run in nature. It's really nice. And uh, uh, it's a brainstorming moment where a lot of great ideas happen when you're running. At the same time, most of the problems you were thinking there were problems, you've identified solutions. So <laughs> running is associated with problem solving, with creativity, with <laughs> better health, with the relaxation. You know, you just get in from a and you feel much much more better so i really don't do it or consider myself as a serious runner i do from time to time engage in races and i love those races i learned so much by doing these races about myself you know um i started by 10k and then i moved to 20 and then i said okay in less than a year, I'm going to do a marathon. And I didn't say that to anyone. And I was running in groups and the people that were there running for two or three years didn't do it yet. And I was the only one, you know, in one year, in less than one year, I'm going to do my marathon. And they saw me training and develop my training plan and do it the first time. And I really love the aspect of it, of challenging yourself, you know, like setting objectives. So I want to do this race and this is the timing I want to achieve. And, you know, you develop a plan and you stick to the plan (laughs) and you get every day. And by doing it, you really don't think it's a plan. It's an enjoyment moment. You know, you get you get there and you're doing your training every day. And one thing leads to the, uh, the other and you find yourself in a race. And then when you are in a race. It's a race, not you're competing with others. You're just competing with yourself. You're there. You've hit the nail on the head, though. It's this planning aspect. You have to plan. Yeah. Because then, you know, if you've got it written on your wall, it doesn't become something that you need to think about because you've already done it there. And most things in life that you're successful at, and I guess you, everything's planned. You have to have some sort of framework that you're going, like, here's the beginning, middle, and end, and these are the things I want to achieve. And if you don't actually sit down and do it, you know, you just sort of, you know, you, you just buffeted by the winds in life because you don't actually have a plan that you're focusing on. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The, you know, the plans, however, are just plans. <laughs> yes, they can, of course, they fluid, they can change, so, but, yeah. but you've got something. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a vision and you're training yourself, you know, you're training yourself if you hit that situation. But then there's a continuous adjustment when you're in that race. It's a new, completely different experience. Even if you're trained in different conditions, you get there and you realize, well, it's different, you know, like it's... Uh, but you trained your body and you trained your mind by exercising, by doing those long distance running. You already <clears throat> exercised and trained your mental you know, strength, your resilience strength. And so you keep speaking to yourself during the run when you look at people and you see they have already given up. And you tell yourself, no way, my feet hurt, so I'm not giving up. Yeah, <laughs> I don't it's... give up when my feet hurt. I'm going to give up. I'm going to stop when I decide, you know, it's going to be the end. So keep going. Yeah, listen, your feet, never mind. The race yeah. is finished. You can have them wrapped up. I think this is the thing. It's this muscle of resilience training that it's a muscle. You need yes. to exercise it and you need to strengthen it. And I think most things in life, um, your decision-making capabilities and how evolved you are it's it's the muscle that you're exercising every day and the decisions you're making good versus bad decisions how you're making decisions and for anyone out there listening it's 
it's you have to practice and sometimes you make bad decisions it doesn't mean like it's the end of the world unless you've really made a huge stuff up but generally speaking you know like and it's as you say your plans evolve based on the muscles that you're flexing and you and you're exercising yeah absolutely i think it's you people might hear about it and find it challenging it's no it's big but it's really small little steps every day it's waking up every day is trying to adopt that positive mindset you're not going to be that every day and all the time everybody has ups and downs but by building these small routines you really take out yourself from the negativity and you really gradually build up the direction where you want because you've got a vision you've got always you know you've got to have that vision otherwise you're lost in everyday details and the everyday details and changes keep accumulating there are a lot you know especially yeah. during a crisis and so but if you have that vision and you keep up those healthy routines every day you are always making progress and you want to go on in that direction and without actually noticing, you know, it's like, a, it's like a race. You build up from 10K to 20 to 14, then you can do more, 45 and go on. So it's really building up these small little habits every day and sticking to them. Yeah, Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you know who he is, Hen, but I absolutely love him. He's a Canadian professor. He's a little bit out there. He's got a lot to say about a lot of things. And um, I, I happen to agree with him on quite a few of, you, of his uh, his opinions. And he says it's the 1%. If you made a, a 1% increment in your life every single day, just think over 365 days times two years times five years, when you look back at your life and you've just made this one little decision. So do I eat this donut or don't I eat the donut? You know, um, <laughs> do I drink this glass of extra glass of wine or don't I drink at all? Like these compounded effects decisions, one day you wake up and you go, oh my goodness, um, you know, people look at you and they go, are you successful? It's the overnight success, you know, yeah. about the overnight success. It's not. It's the compound effect of decisions you've made every single day. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, sometimes it might be a long way, and you it might take you much more time. Uh, but you know, just having that vision and sticking to it, and trying to make uh, habits every day and positive routines to move forward is the key to success. Hind, it's been an absolute pleasure and delight speaking with you. Um, I don't think anyone that's listened to this podcast today can't help but feel uplifted. I love your positive attitude. Um, It gives me hope for the future. And I think our future, um, it is going to have tough times because, of course, you know, everyone's been impacted by COVID and the economy and everything else. But just your sheer can-do attitude, I think it's just an absolute breath of fresh air. Any closing thoughts for our listeners today? And can they reach out to you? Can they email you if they want to? Can I put your email address in the show notes? Yeah, no worries at all. I'm really open to engaging conversations. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I would say as a closing thought, first about health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, stick to some healthy routines. Go out for a walk. Stay positive. Stay. Don't forget the overall vision. And related to the AI and the Future of Work Festival, I would say, please join the conversation and the network. Let's together create a better future uh, with AI in Australia and beyond. So, yeah, do not hesitate at all in reaching out.
Super. Hin, thank you so much. I'm going to put it in the show notes. Um, you know, I have an invitation from Hin to contact her. Please do. As with all my other guests, they love hearing from you. Um, if you haven't as yet, please uh, press the follow button and get regular updates of when um, the show is coming out. And I now have a little donate button. So please feel free, if you think you've got value out of the podcast, to donate to the podcast i've decided not to actually have like a sponsor and it's yeah, too much like sure. so people feel free donate <laughs> away and uh please join me again next week for another episode of let's talk robotics well thanks nikki i really enjoyed the conversation uh, thank you very much for having me and have an excellent day thank you Hin. Mm-hmm.